0: Hey there, welcome to ATL in 29, a Peachtree Hoops podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm recording a podcast for the second time today. Uh, We don't normally do that. In fact, if you look at our recent track record, I think we went a month without recording a podcast. To do two in the same day is a little bit of a shock to the system, but it's one that we have no choice to do, no choice but to do, because the Hawks, uh, according to Woj Traded Torian Pierre oh, the Hawks traded <laughs> the Hawks traded Torian Prince to the Brooklyn Nets, and it seems like they got quite a haul. And to talk about that, uh, I have Glenn Willis on with me. Glenn is the host of the Full Court Press podcast and a writer for Peachtree Hoops. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Uh, really happy to be here. Uh, my first question, I guess, would be uh, how big of a party should Hawks fans be willing to throw uh, in the aftermath of this trade?
1: Well, I, I think for those that are interested, they could throw quite a party. I think Schlenk uh, worked some magic here. Um, and, um, you know, first reaction is, if anyone's surprised that this happened, they haven't been paying attention. Um, another reminder also that Travis Schlenk did not draft Torian Prince, and so the, that's always a thing when that player is kind of, in Torian's case, for example, nearing restricted free agency. Um, but to get a first round, then to basically get two first round draft picks for Prince, who it seems has uh, decided that he did not want to really have any ownership in his next contract. That seems kind of obvious in um, the outcome here. Um, but to be able to get two first round draft picks for Torian Prince, who they've decided, yep, um, we're not going to um, own this next contract, and then an ex- what will be an expiring contract now, Crab. Crabb, um, I think it's, it's a great move. Um, I may be an outlier, but I'm not one to kind of celebrate anyone's departure or what have you. But, uh, but fans that were really down on TP the fast, last few seasons, I get it. I totally understand it, and if they want to want to throw a party and kind of celebrate that, Then I'm not going to criticize that whatsoever, even in my style. Like, I get it.
0: Yeah. I I agree with you. I think, you know, the restricted free agency and the fact that Schlenk didn't draft Prince were two huge indicators of what was to come. You know, I think if you look at the things that are said over the past couple of months, you know, Schlenk has asked, you know, what's Torian's future here, and, you know, what else is he going to say? He's going to say, we love we love having Torian here. Uh, but, you know, you kind of have to dig a little bit deeper because that's that's the kind of question that there's only one answer to. It's not like he's say, oh, wow, yeah, we, we need to get rid of Torian. I mean, no, nobody's ever going to come out and just say that. So, you know, you had to dig a little bit deeper to know that this probably was coming. Uh, I think the haul for what, what they got was tremendous, and it, it's almost a little bit symmetric because – if you go back to how they acquired Torian Prince in the first place, they traded Jeff Teague when Jeff Teague had a year left on his contract, and you know, so they turned one year of what they had left on a player's contract into something very useful, which was a lottery pick. In and Torian Prince was he a lottery pick or was he the 15? I can't remember. He's either 14. He's, or 15, right? He, Prince was 12. 12. Oh, okay. So definitely a yeah. lottery pick. Yeah. But so but you were
1: hitting on it because the the, the three team trade was like. 16 with the Utah and 12 came to Atlanta. So you, so 16 was in the mix in that trade. Right. Um, but Atlanta had gotten, got number 12. So,
0: yeah. So, I mean, they're kind of doing the same thing. They have a year left on Turian Prince. They probably don't want to undertake his next contract, which, you know, part of it is I, I think fit. I don't think Prince is a player who fits what, which length wants to do, but at the same time, he's a very useful player, uh, but he just doesn't really fit the timeline either. He's just kind of, you know, he's older. I don't think now is the point where you want to sign your third or fourth best player to a big deal, right? I mean, you you want to kind of wait and have those big money contracts go to the guys that are, you know, firmly in your team's core. And I think just even the timeline didn't match up and, you know, if it kind of really didn't work. And so you had to know that this trade was coming and, and Torian's a good player. Uh, it, it may work out for him in Brooklyn and even if it does, you know, if, if Torian's, you know, better in Brooklyn than he was in Atlanta because it's a better fit and he's healthier, you know, so be it. But I still think that this is a strong trade.
1: Yeah. Same. And then to kind of go back to slang kind of framing things. Um, some people will kind of hate on it, but I'll, I'll give you an example like how bad the Lakers looked last year when they were trying to get Davis at the deadline and they could not even credibly say that we love Lonzo. We really believe in Brandon Ingram. And, you know, we, you know, some people say Travis, like, I still remember the first time he's asked about Dennis <laughs> and his, I, th- I think his first response was, you know, he's a better defensive player than you think he is. And like that is total BS. But, you know, he's at least kind of saying, you know, putting something up there. Like we value him yep. for what he is right now.
0: And, and, and they ended Dennis up in-
1: and Trey play together. Yeah, absolutely they can. There's no reason that they can't, <laughs> you know. Um, Certain questions then, have like, one answer. Yeah, and now Dennis uh, was traded out for a return of assets, and now TP was, you know, same thing. Um, and then in terms of, you know, paying a kind of a secondary player before you pay your first guy, the timing of all that's, like, really critical to get correct and one example I'll point out is in, in Minnesota, they went they gave Andrew Wiggins a max before they got into uh, Carl Anthony Towns' max contract. And now that is not a good situation at all. And so you know, the ideally the Hawks would pay Collins and kind of trade at the same time. But I, I think what's more realistic is that when those two guys ap- approach the, the the 12 month period where both of them are likely to get extensions, you think of the way it's going is that they'll have an idea that each guy is worth X or Y or Z. You know, Wiggins was not playing to the value of a max contract yet. In fact, when you give a guy a max contract, they come back out and go, yeah, we gave him the max, but he still needs to get better. You know, that's, that's a problem. And so, yeah, trying to give say Prince, like whatever he's, I think he's worth of like 12 by four, that creates a real issue when it comes to time to pay, Trey and John Collins, if that, if they both continue on their trajectory, and this might be a true herder. So uh, just, you know, really, really smart kind of two to three-year uh, franchise plan. Um, and yeah, Kevin uh, Peltz, one of the things that I thought was a really good point in his article that he put out today on the, on the grades was Atlanta beat everyone else kind of to the first deal. And sometimes that's how you get the biggest return is by being able to uh, pull the trigger before everyone else feels like they're ready to do it. So I, th- I think good for Schlink. Um, we'll, we'll see uh, kind of what eight, ten, and seventeen and three second round draft picks actually turns into on draft night. But I think it's a good day. Good day for the Hawks. And that's not me crapping on Torian.
0: Yeah, it's it's a funny spot he was in because you know he comes out of Baylor. He's a power forward in his own defense. And I think people look at Torian and they think, wow, he's a great athlete. And I'm not, you know, I don't think he's necessarily a great athlete. But he does have a lot of the things that NBA teams look for in terms of, you know, every team is looking for the guy that you can put on Paul George, the guy that you can put on Kevin Durant. And those guys are just so, so hard to find. I mean, and and to find some that don't take off. A whole lot of the table, uh, offensively speaking, that's really, really rare. I mean, they're, they're just on a lot of people who are competent offensive players and big enough to guard the biggest wings across the league, like Kevin Durant and Paul George. They just there just aren't that many of them. And you know, you could say what you want about Torian; I mean, he didn't he didn't do a great job defensively, but he was the one person you know after Tabo left that they could give that kind of task to. Like you just can't ask. Some of the other Hawks' wings to to guard players that big, like you could, uh, like you could have Torian. So you know he he did a job. He he fit a role. He just didn't necessarily do it in any kind of special way. I mean, he was just kind of just kind of second third second and third year doing doing those sorts of defensive things. And it, it didn't you know what made it worse is that it didn't seem like he was progressing. It felt like he was regressing, but. You know that that first you mentioned that first season of promise, but even then it was almost like he was miscast. It was just he played. I think he played a little bit over his head that first year. To be honest, I'm not sure he had that in him, and I'm not sure that they were asking the same type of prominent role in that first year that they that he was in his second and third year. I mean, I, I think they could rely on other more veteran players to do some of those tasks, and he could come off the bench and. and kind of clean up against players that weren't to that level
1: yeah for sure I, I reflecting on that I remember seeing him a lot in the weak side corner you know that's where he Hoover on the other team was in the weak set corner and he would just be like it's kind of help with the rim tagging a roller or digging if the, the ball got rotated or what have you but um but he was doing a lot of the little things then that he wasn't doing the last two years and then I, I still think the league Um, in its current form, it's still kind of evolving, you know, it kind of, the Warriors forced kind of a reset, you know, a, a number of years ago. Um, but I think the league is still trying to figure out, do you want like really big wing defenders? And for Torian, like, you know, if, if you're not watching him closely and evaluating him closely, what you might see is he's, he's pretty fast for his size in a straight line, Right. Pretty yep. fast, it could switch into the court. But when it comes to moving laterally, getting over a body, those sorts of things, when yes. you're six eight and you have a six seven one, that's a lot to get over that you know, that that screen. Right. Sometimes you want a smaller guy to navigate that, that can just stay attached. Now, you, like for example, if you watch like Patrick Beverly defending Kevin Durant, you know, in that in that matchup, but Pat Beverly's is not even six feet tall, I don't think, you know, but. His technique is perfect. His footwork is perfect. He understands if I beat him to his spot, he's going. To, I'm going to have that much more leverage on him. And I look at like DeAndre Bibri, who's not quite as big as Torian. You know, um, I know in the moment we're going to talk about well, how does this open up playing time for the wings of the roster and stuff. But Bibri has been a much better defender. He's just more intense. He looks more confident in what he's doing. He doesn't have as much body and weight to try to get over a screen.
0: He I mean, it's it's night and day. With, it's not a day. Because you you mentioned like quickness and lateral movement. I mean, Torian has straight line speed, but he doesn't have the footwork and you watch Bembry and he's breathtaking. Especially you go and watch him in person. It's just I, I you know <laughs> I've always just kind of been taken aback by watching Bembry move around a court. He just eats up space just effortlessly. It's 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 breathtaking to watch him move around a court. Uh so you I mean Torian, Torian never had any chance of, of moving around basketball court the way that Bembry can.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then when you, th- when you think about, you know, Torian's kind of a long strider. You know, he's a big guy. And in, in, in that straight line, I think about a former Hawk, Tim Hardaway. Tim Hardaway is as, has as long of a stride in the sprint as anyone. And he can just, you know, run away from all defenders in transition. Um, but guys who rely on their long stride in kind of the open court on a straight line – when they get they encounter traffic in the defensive F court, their instinct is to take one big stride to try to get in front of or recover. And it's that's just slow. And guys who are taking smaller steps when they're running you know forward or backwards or laterally, those are the guys who just have kind of that um kind of ballet type of footwork to kind of dance around that screen or dance around that body. And you know, that that's what Patrick really does. He keeps his feet close to to each other and feels where the screens have come and just kinda of rolls across it or and it takes false small, small steps. That's what Demory does as well. And Hardaway, we remember that Washington playoff series where he was just died on screen after screen after screen. <laughs> and the reason was because he was trying to take one giant step and recover and it just that does not work. And so when I'm evaluating like the wings of the are looking at this class, it may sound super dorky, but I'm taking a look, is this guy a long strider or a short strider? You know? And that's a, that's a really big part of how I look at guys that can encounter, um, you know, working in tight quarters on defense successfully. And, and you know, Bibri is, you know, is exactly that. You know, he's, he's not as fast as Torian end-to-end. He's much more oh, explosive. I,
0: I don't know about that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think he probably has the straight line speed, too.
1: Yeah? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I, it, it'd be interesting to see that. I just... Tim, just just thinking how long Torian's strikes were once he got going that he would maybe pull away, but um, but in terms of like craft at the rim and bounciness and I mean DeAndre is an underrated dunker in this league, oh, you know, yeah. And then when Prince came back after the injury last year, I man, he had no lift at all. Right. So I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to evaluate that as being kind of his normal operational status or what have you because it was post injury. Um, yep. But you know, with big with big guys bigger guys you have to ask yourself you know it's harder to come back from an injury like that you have to account for the fact that may not get to where he was you know completely before that injury so all those things I think had to kind of factor into what Schlink was navigating here around a decision point on Prentice's future with the franchise
0: yep and I mean it's easy to say but Torian is just he's a great shooter
1: he is he is and In the Nets context, if they are going to chase two max free agents with more than seven years in the league and they're both ball dominant players, you could see him potentially being a great fit into that type of roster construct for this next season. You get the year on the, you know, this last year on the rookie scale contract to see if he commits to what you're trying to do as a franchise or not before you have to make a decision point on paying him. But for, let's say for example, uh, you know, I'm not trying to predict what's going to happen. I, I'm not into that that business. I'm not as bad as a horse in terms of avoiding that. I predicted like the playoffs and stuff like that, but I'm not going to try to predict all these massive you know moves and stuff. But let's say they did get KD and Kyrie. Well, touring off the ball is fantastic, you know, fit there. And then if Kenny Atkinson could get him to play defense, and Kenny's a really good motivator, we we all know that. Then he could you know likely be a good fit But the Hawks are trying to build a certain culture a certain camaraderie a certain commitment to playing together with one another and I do think Tory might just be a guy that is always going to be a better player on a kind of a team that's built to win now than on you know really committing to something that's going to take more you know, two to three years potentially to kind of realize some success and you know some guys are just have that makeup where they're like I'm going to be more invested if we're doing better now than if I'm you know trying to get talked into you know building four two, three years out there's you know that's that could be the case
0: one thing that's interesting to me and I'm going to backtrack a little bit one one thing that I'll never forget uh, going back to Torrey and Zurki year you know late in the season waiting for a practice to finish or something along those lines in the bowels of Phillips arena when practice was still at Phillips arena and right and it was and it was still Phillips arena then uh, Wes Wilcox was going around, and I think it was me and Chris Venable, maybe one other person. And Wes is just trying to pump up DeAndre and Torian, you know. And enough of the season had gone by where we'd gotten to see them play a little bit, and you'd gotten to see some of the other rookies from that disastrous rookie class. Uh, that that wasn't the strongest rookie class. So the Hawks getting those two guys in the spots that they did that. You know that was a pretty reasonable haul, uh, and so Wes was kind of trying to pump them up a little bit and talk about you know they'd done this and they'd done that, and and it felt like a really really hard sell, uh, uh, you know just just a little bit of a hard push there, and it's like, it's, it, I don't know, it, it made me a little bit uneasy. Like he was trying trying to get things spun the right way when when things weren't going great for that. Particular set of uh, basketball operations people in Atlanta, um, but that brings me to, to Jeff Peterson because Peterson, until I want, what was it a week ago? Maybe two, I maybe suppose. two. Yeah, okay. Peterson was in that front office with Wes Wilcox, and he was an assistant general manager uh, here in Atlanta. For more than one boss, right? I mean, he was an assistant general manager under West when West was GM, and and Bud was president of basketball operations, right? He was an assistant. Uh, Peterson was an assistant GM, and then when Schlenk came in, he kept him. And it's interesting that within a week, ten days of of Peterson becoming an assistant general manager or one of multiple assistant general managers in, in Brooklyn, he trades for a guy that he was part of the decision-making team that drafted Torian in the first place. Uh, It it feels like a more than just a coincidence, maybe. I mean, I'm sure he brought some inside knowledge. I'm sure that Brooklyn was happy to have uh, some inside Intel on who Torian is and what he brings to a team. And, and Brooklyn acted on that Intel, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's it's the timing is just you know too suspicious and and those sorts of things but and it's not only Peterson but um when you look at the nats coaching staff and if you if any if anyone can remember back to that first year under bud where they went to to Vegas and played and I think ESPN crew was giving them crap because they had like 20 assistant coaches in their polo sitting around the, <laughs> around the bench. When I watched a Nets game and like all the coaches like on the second row, maybe one of the first shows, like half those guys that were in Vegas are up there in Brooklyn now. He, he took a lot of guys from Atlanta, junior staff, and gave them an opportunity to kind of grow into a more senior role. But there's a lot of uh, connectivity still from the the staff that was in place now. Um, in the front office and the coaching staff when, sure. when Bud was kind of building things up. So that's, it's to me, it's not a coincidence at all. I mean, from afar, you wonder, you know, is he still, like, staying overcommitted to, you know, you know how you make a decision on, like, say, a a, a guy in a, in a draft class, you're like, oh, that's the number one guy in the class, and he's not quite working out, but four years later, you're still, st- you know, trying to convince everyone else that it was <laughs> the wrong organization he went to or the wrong situation I know or whatever, you know. And so you wonder if Peterson's, like, it's still really – maybe he was the one that really sold Torian as the pick at 12, you know. he's um, curious about that. But um, but I, I what – you know, my educational background is in psychology. That, that doesn't mean I can just want to – but I just – what that means is I'm gravitated towards body language and situational stuff and things like that. It doesn't mean I totally understand what's going on. I'm just interested in it. And from that angle, it would not surprise me at all if the Nets brought in a really big superstar like KD, that TP would just play so much harder, it'd be so much more engaged and involved. Because he just seems like a guy that would respond to a situation where he's playing next to one of the best players in the league. That just, you know, that sure. just would not surprise me if that's the case. I'm not saying yep. it is, I'm just saying it would surprise me.
0: Oh, yeah, Torian could absolutely thrive next year. I mean, because he's a great shooter, he's a big athlete. He hasn't had an ideal situation in any of his three seasons. I mean, he, he was here for the Dwight season and then Bud's last season and then a season where a very low expectations last year. So, you know, he, he, he might – he's going to be in a completely different atmosphere next year in Brooklyn. And, you know, between that and the potential that he gets a little bit healthier than he was the last season, he, he could absolutely thrive. And yet, you know, you look at the haul that the Hawks got – and this is still a great. I still I think it's a tremendous haul because of the fact that the writing was on the wall because the Hawks really probably weren't going to undertake his next contract. I mean, to, to get you know to, to, to sum up what uh, Woj and, and Zach Lowe uh, reported with respect to this deal, you know they're getting uh, number seventeen pick this year and a lottery protected pick from Brooklyn next year. And it rolls over for two years beyond that with the same lottery protection until uh, if it doesn't convey in any of those three years, then it becomes two seconds. Uh, that's, is, the lottery, is the lottery protected or one to four protected? I believe it's it's lottery protected. Uh, the way Zach Lowe reported it, it, was it was one to 14 for all three years. I may have missed that one before the four
1: because um, I was thinking to myself with the way that the draft is constructed now, one to four is gonna be like the no-brainer no brainer protection that you can put on anything. He so. didn't
0: Zach Lowe didn't even use numbers when he reported it. He just says it's uh it's lot it's lottery protected next year, the year after that, and twenty twenty two.
1: Okay. I will go with that. I, I I thought of something else, but I didn't double check or anything at all, so I will defer to you, sir.
0: So I mean you look at I mean you look at some other trades, like even something like the Porzingis trade. I mean, what did New York get for Chris Stops? They got Dennis Smith Jr., but they essentially got two first-round picks. Uh, one of which has some protection, and one of which is unprotected. But if if Dallas is good two years from now, those two picks are going to be roughly equivalent to to what the Hawks get in their two picks from New Jersey. New Jersey! I am very, very old and tired. Not New Jersey, Brooklyn. <laughs> I do it all the time. Yeah, and... Uh, but but Dallas
1: did take on more long-term salary with the Hardaway contract. Yeah, um, they took on salary. Just, I, guess, I guess it's just one more year where the Hawks get one year of um, Crab. Um, the Mavericks have, I think, a, I don't remember Courtney Lee's has a partial guarantee for this year or something like that, and then two more years of Hardaway. I think the last year is a player option, but... <clears throat> It's not really a player option anymore.
0: <laughs> and it, you, don't even, you don't really have to get too far into the, to the weeds on it, but just the fact that those two packages are anywhere near each other, that's pretty overwhelming. I mean, what, what you should get for Kristaps versus what you get for Torian Prince. I mean, I like Torian as a player, but uh, I don't think his upside is anywhere near what Christop's is. is...
1: Uh, no, Kristaps, uh, you know, is most people even their moderate outcome uh, you know projection would be what three to five all-stars you know that's kind of a middle you know likelihood outcome for him if not more than that if if he stays healthy and can kind of figure it out on 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 defense in terms of team defensive execution um and then just become even just a bit of a passer you know um, I mean, the, the passing lanes he should be able to see from how big he is and how lengthy he is are, you know, infinite. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly Nowitzki is in a completely different stratosphere as a prospect than, than Torian, um, even though the closest them might be. Torian's kind of aging out of prospects. That is for, for sure. Kristaps not not a lot, not too far behind, but, you know, so.
0: So... Are there any other recent deals to which you would compare this one? I mean, that was one that kind of struck me when you look at the trade package. Maybe Zach Lowe did a comparison, too. He kind of compared it to the original Brooklyn trade when they took on. Alan Crabb, I think, was the one he compared it to. And let me quote his tweet because I thought this was an interesting comparison, too. Let me see if I can get this right. Up a up a dup a dup yeah, he said that the Nets got the number 29 pick and a decent second rounder to take on two years of Damari, Car- Damari Carroll salary and get Damari Carroll. Uh, and then they gave up two firsts to dump one year of Crab and get Prince. Um, you know, he just... His, his notion of the tweet was to say that it, it gives you the impression that Brooklyn knows what they're doing here, that they have a, a certified use for this cap space that's coming their way, but at the same time, I think it also reinforces that this is a very good trade for Atlanta. Yeah,
1: Kevin Pelton gave Brooklyn the higher grade, but I think fans overreact to how the grade their team gets compared to the other team's grade, and and of course uh, KP is has a very mathematical statistical basis for how he derives um, you know estimated value uh, to trying yeah. to. And I don't know. You have a. a your uh, brand is that you have quite a appreciation for math, <laughs> um, so I'm I'm sure you sure that resonates with you. Uh, but I say if you're just trying to look at how well your team, did, just look at the, te- the team, the grade your team got. Don't worry about the other one because the teams just had such different objectives. I mean, the, the Nets are trying to move right now and become you know real relevant players in this league for the 2019-20 season. The Hawks are looking one or two years past that. And so this trade, both teams got something they wanted out of it. And the other thing that was kind of interesting to me looking at this trade is that, you know, when the Hawks decided to rebuild, you know, the, the, the really extreme example for the last 10 years is Philly, right? Being really bad for like three or four complete seasons – where the Nets, you know, everyone's waiting like, oh, my God, it's to be five years before they get even, you know, a couple of draft picks under their own control and could then tank and, and kind of go to the top of the draft and get their players. And the Nets were like, no, we're not waiting on that. We're going to invest in evaluating players, you know, and try to get picks in that 20 to 30 range. Um, well, they, they had a pick swap or two, but then, you know, they made some trades to get some picks in the 20, 30 range and it's turned into Karis LeVert, you know, guys like that. Um, and so they didn't wait until they had their own top pick and then go out and have a 15-win season. And the Hawks are taking more of the Nets' path than the Sixers' path in that, you know, they 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 try to win every game, in my opinion, except for one this past season. They tried <laughs> to win every game, <laughs> and that one was obvious. Um, but that's not what Philly was doing, you know. And so it's just interesting to me that the Hawks are valuing the 17th overall pick in a draft that everyone's killing for being – uh, a really shallow draft, and what I say is um, if you really believe in your va- ability to evaluate talent, then you should value the 17th the World Pick in a draft like this. So, I mean, and Schlenk has, has proven. Now, they, they were richer draft class, but he got a John Collins at, what, what was he, 19? 19. Yep. Herder, 19. You know, um, and then, you know, the jury is very much still out on Amari but I'm super intrigued by what he has as a basketball player if he can get his body right oh, yeah. his ability to to handle the basketball you know I wrote a piece for Peter Hoops when Trey started getting Trapped like about mid-season, that Miami game was. I think was the first time we saw it coming out of the uh, one or two games out of the All-Star break. And I read an article on the Hawks are going to have to have big men that can function in the short role, you know, like excel on it. And Amari has the baseline foundational skill set to do that if he can get himself to the point where he can handle everything else the team needs him to do on the court, you know, like defensively, etc. And so um the 17th pick. And you know, one thing I was thinking. I heard a lot of people say, oh, here the Hawks are going. You could get ready to move up to third or fourth in this draft pick and maybe get RP Barrett. But when I saw the 17th pick, I was like, that, that's exactly where you'd want to grab a big in this draft class if you do. I don't see a big worse really going top eight or even 10. Um, you know, I know Brad's been kind of, uh, kind of vetting that with everyone he's been having on his podcast. That's been great material. But I, I, I kind of feel exactly like what Brad does. I don't see a big I would take at 10. But when you get to 17, that's where you really can start seeing, okay, that's a chance to get a big. So if the Hawks do want a big in this draft. I think maybe three weeks ago you could look at those three second-round draft picks and say, hey, uh, the bigs are going to slide here. And I think what's happening now is the Hawks are feeling like some of the bigs we like are now moving up in this draft, and those second-round picks aren't going to be enough. We don't want to use a tenth. So I, I I saw that 17 pick, and I thought that's a perfect place for the Hawks to – are going to pick in this draft. We'll see if that proves that that was an immediate response to seeing that they had picking pick in the strap.
0: Now you got to name names. I'm okay <laughs> with that.
1: Yeah, okay. so um, Klaxon, I'm big on Klaxon. Um, he's a ridiculous athlete, ridiculous length and speed and agility. Um, and then he has the... The, coordinate, the raw coordination skills. He's already showing uh, the ability to kind of knock down some perimeter shots. He definitely has the foundational at to dive to the rim. So he's right now my first choice, but I have to say, I'm still trying to figure out how good Goga is or not. Um, uh, Graham did a great job on his profile, and, and I enjoyed the episode you did with him to talk about Goga, and then Dwayne Dedman possibly coming back as well. But I'm the thing I'm concerned about Goga is he looks like a better athlete when he's in space than when he is in traffic. And that to me is a big differentiator in terms of how guys are going to be able to kind of function in the NBA. So that's the thing that's holding it. He looks like greatly skilled, et cetera, et cetera. And then you tell yourself, well, if he's going to be with 80% of what Jokic is and you don't use a tip on him in this draft, you're super dumb. And then, you know, so there's the other side of me. He's kind of trying to scold the other side of my brain into, yeah, he doesn't look great in traffic right now. But neither did Jokic when he was he was drafted. And then, I you know I think you were there for his workout. But I'm not sure where to put Bruno Fernando. Like a year ago, I thought he was just terrible. Yeah, uh, but he made <laughs> it seems like he maybe made some pro, made some progress. But I can't. I'm still evaluating him to see like how much progress did he make. Um, so those are the three that I have my eyes on. Uh, I just don't think Jackson Hayes is a fit for what the Hawks need from the position. Um, Claxton certainly is more of an upside thing, where Goga is, you know, pretty skilled and stuff. Then I just, I still need to go back and watch some more Bruno to figure out how much did he improve over last year because I did not like him last year at all. But I'm much more intrigued this year by him.
0: I think he's intriguing. I mean, I, he, he seems like a big who won't take that much off the table, except for maybe he, defensively. I mean, he's he's, he's got to get better, but I think he has the tools to do it. I mean, I think he has the body and the foot speed, but we'll have to see. Uh, I, I think he's very intriguing, and, and I'm glad you brought him up. That that was the name I was kind of listening for. I was like, is he going to mention Bruno? I
1: think he's the guy that everyone's, everyone's afraid to bring his name up, but I think he should be bringing it up and be like, this guy is like a specimen. And he looks like, I mean, he was so raw a year ago, and you look at him now and it's like, Okay, he's not like super skilled, but man, he made a lot of progress in 12 months. And then if you can project, you know, similar improvement across the next 12 months and working with a professional player, you know, he's very intriguing to me. Um, But again, I think both, you know, a month ago, both Claxon and Fernando, and they still may be, but they were viewed as like very gettable in top 10 picks in the second round. And now I think no way in hell is that they're going to last till 31.
0: Yeah, if you look at what the Hawks have done over the first couple of seasons of, of Travis Schlenk's tenure, you know, one of the things that they've liked to do is is find the big man who they think can shoot and make him shoot more than he has ever before. And I think Fernando kind of fits that. I, I think, you know, of a lot of the bigs in that range, I think he's the one who's who's gotten his shot to the right place not necessarily that he really showed everything that he has at Maryland but just in terms of of form and touch and repeatability I think he has that kind of form that kind of shooting touch that they might think they can get more out of than other people think they can get out of it
1: yeah for sure the way I would further maybe contrast Claxton and Bruno is Klaxon, I know a lot about his personality and kind of his character because he played in Georgia, and it's just easier to get that information. Uh-huh. Um, and solid teammate, great kid, by all accounts, works hard. Uh, I love the fact that, I, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but his second combine scrimmage, I think at one point he had no point seven rebounds and seven blocks zero points and he was dominating the basketball game <laughs> you love a guy that you love a guy that could dominate the basketball game with zero points right right and so he was just all over the place nobody could figure out how to get a shot even close to the rim and so that was intriguing I, I don't know anything about Bruno's uh personality or character or what have you but from watching him from last year to this year you could tell he has done a ton of work his body's even like more impressive than it was sure. you know, last year and then the skill set it's like wow he I mean he was he couldn't do anything last year, and now he can. So, you know, I, if you ask me, like, which one do you want, I, you know, I think about the fact that if they're going to really think about Collins starting to split time across positions um, or even him playing at the power four position, the one area where he can struggle at times is if it's a rebounding. And uh, and so you have to kind of really put a value on that. And even if we're going to talk about drafting wings at 8 and 10, even kind of going back to TP, Yep. Torrey Prince was an awful rebounder for a guy who's, like, legit 6'8", 6'8", playing small forward. So even when, evol- when Hawks are evaluating wings, to kind of look at roster composition and construct, you know, you're going to have to think about, you know, uh, is a Culver, a Little, a Clark, a Hunter, whoever else is on that list, Williams, whoever. You know, you've got to consider, like, we're going to need some rebounding help from that position, so that's important. But, yeah, uh, sounds like you're a little higher on Bruno than Claxton at this point.
0: Yeah, and, and I agree with you 100% on that rebounding point, that, that that's a a point of need and something that Torian didn't do well and something that I do think that they will look for. I mean, what, what do you think the wing rotation is going to look like next year? I mean, in terms of where does Alan Crabb fit? How desperately do they have to take, some, you know, some big wing with one of these first-round picks, uh, you know, if you had to look in, you just you said something before about not wanting to make predictions, but uh, you know, if you have to look in the crystal ball and figure out what the heck the wing rotation looks like uh, October twenty sixth next year, you know, what do you think it's going to look like?
1: Oh, I'm fine to make predictions when there's not like a ridiculous number of variables, but like trying to guess <laughs> trying to guess where Freitas is going to land that's that's insane. Okay, you know, so I'm just talking. I'm talking about like useful versus non-useful <laughs> predictions. So uh, I think Herder will start. Uh, for sure. I mean, that's... You're like, oh, thanks, Captain Obvious. He started, like, the last 50 games of the year where he wasn't hurt, uh, you know, or whatever it ended up being. Um, to me, I don't think Crabbe has is part of the future of this team, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious if curious Phil even finish the season with the Hawks. He's not tradable in the way that Bays is tradable, um, considering if there might be um, a team out there. I always, like, think about... Um, for example, I don't know if Myers Leonard is expiring as of this year or not, but if there's a like a big man that got overpaid in the 2016 market, you know, the same time that Baysmore did, and they're often willing to send a draft pick, Bays is way more tradable than Crabb, in my opinion, um, because he can defend one through three, and Crabb is just a minus defender at any position he's defending at. And then on top of that... I think the organization, even if they feel like they're not going to have Bayes beyond the season, just feel like we want to do right by him and let him play his way into another contract. And so I think it'll be Bayes and Herter starting. Um, although, uh, you know, uh, Pierce was kind of Bayes's I don't know if it was Bayes' volunteering or just Bayess being very willing to go along with him going to the bench – so that Herder could start last year. But now with Prince gone, I, th- I do think they really try to do right by Bays and give him a lot of, you know, a, enough playing time to demonstrate that, you know, some team should give him an opportunity on his next contract. And then, you know, Pierce really, really liked having Benbery come off the bench last year. Right. Um, because of his playmaking um, when Trey would go to the bench. Um, it, it's going to be interesting. I think part of if whether or not Pierce will give Benbery a chance to start and kind of Take the responsibility of defending the best, the other team's best uh, playmaker, whether that's at, at the point or on the wing, will be impacted by whether or not they add a, a fairly viable backup point guard, um, because that's what kind of helped. Once Jerry Lynn was uh, bought out, um, you know Pierce needed um, Benbury's playmaking on the second unit. But if they really fortify the backup point guard, they could they could say, "Hey, Baze, why don't we bring you off the bench?" Kind of like we did the second half of last year. Give Bimby a chance to start, especially because, similar to where Prince is right now, the Hawks have to make a decision about DeAndre Bimbrey. Now, I think they're less concerned about another team giving Bimbrey, like a, a really big, you know, offer right. that they would have to match or not or not. You know, um, Prince with his shooting shooting prowess and his size and such was was I think they were a little bit more concerned about what type type of uh, offer they might have to match. But sure. yeah, I think the in terms of playing at two and three. The three primary guys will be Herder, Bays, and Benbury, and then the fourth guy might be a guy they draft at eight or ten. Um, you know, and, or we'll you know we'll see we'll see what else happens. But I just think Krabs not going to be a priority at all. Okay, um, would be surprised if he's bought out. You know, even before the traditional buyout period. Oh wow! Okay. Do uh, you think they're gonna? Uh,
0: see what he, he can give them. No, probably not. I mean, I kind of kind of feel the same way as you. Like, I think they might try to see what he can, he, what Crab can do for them. But at the same time, I think, you know, if they do get that wing of the future somewhere near the the top half of this draft, that that Crab would be the odd man out at that point.
1: Yeah, but if they can get a real backup point guard, that that allows Benbury to shift to the starting lineup a lot more feasibly than if they're they have a guy like more on a kind of two-way or a, a raw rookie like they did last year. So, you know, if if they if they go chase a legit backup point guard, that may be an indication that they're wanting to let Benbury slide into the starting lineup okay. and bring Baines off the bench. Um, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. I was. I was pretty interested in some of the point guard prospects in this draft class, a second round draft picks. I was really disappointed, for example, that Tremont waiters went back to LSU. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not so sure how much I love Jordan bone, a guy who has his only good season his junior year when he's 21 years old is going to scratch your head a little bit. despite the fact that he killed all of the uh, athletic testing at the combine. Um, And then I'm super curious about like Tamari ponds. I know he's pretty, projected to go like 45 to 60 and maybe maybe not get drafted at all, that dude could score the rock and uh, is, is kind of a well, – he's, he's, just, he's just ridiculous with the basketball uh, scoring and passing, which might remind you of uh, a guy already on the Hawks roster. Now, I'm not saying Ponds. Obviously, he's not in that class. But if you're trying to get, find a guy who can give you 12 to 14 minutes, that's somewhat you know, in terms of the role, what where his where strengths and weaknesses are. Pons is pretty interesting uh, guy to me, but I don't think – if they, for example, draft Pons with the last draft pick, I would presume, and say we're going to give him a shot at being our backup point guard, well, then Beverly's going to come off the bench because a rookie point guard's not going to be strong enough to carry the facilitation and creation on that second unit. So, like, if they went out and were able to secure a guy, say, like Patrick Beverly or someone like that that's on the market, a veteran guy – um, that might mean that Benbury's headed toward a starting lineup. So that, I'm watching that backup point guard position to give me an indication of who's going to start with the wing versus come off the bench.
0: In my gut, I just don't think Bembry will start. And I'm, I'm using last year as a predictor for next season. And my feeling is this, that you look at what the Hawks do well and what the core and the future of their team is, it's really the Trey Young John Collins pick and roll. And they did everything that they could the last season to make sure that those two were out there with Herter and Prince, who were far and away, the best two shooters they could put out there with them. With the goal of making sure that that that, that pick and roll combination did as much as they could. You know, they, they had Debman out there shooting. He was a good shooter, herder, Prince. They had a lot of shooting out there to make sure that that pick and roll combo worked. And, and I just don't know, man. I don't think they're. I know the emphasis is going to be a lot more, uh, pronounced on defense this year from, from Lloyd Pierce. I mean, that that's coming. He said it was coming, you know, at the end of the season that, that, you know, defense is really going to be the key for year two or it you know, it really wasn't. It was more just sort of player development in year one. Um, I still don't think you can start Bembry if you want that pick and roll combo to be as good as it can be. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I just I don't think that they believe enough in Bembry as a shooter. Uh, you know, Schlenk is always a pro shooting guy, and and I think with Bembry, he was drafted with the goal of well, he's got all these tools, and we'll teach him how to shoot. And, um, he's a hundred percent a better shooter than he was when he came into the NBA, but. He's not anywhere near what Kevin Herter and, and Torian Prince are, and I, and I think that takes enough off the table that where it could cut into what the, the Hawks do in terms of pick and roll, and, and as such, I think I think he'll still be coming off the bench next year.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinated to see what he looks like as a shooter coming in coming out of this offseason, because all the injuries he had were all like wrists yep. and like that that basically prevented him from doing any sh- shooting work where if a guy has a, like a knee or an ankle or whatever, they put him in his chair and just work on his, you know, upper body uh, portion of his shooting motion, stuff like that. So he really hasn't had a summer that I recall to really shoot all summer long that, you know, so that's something that might be different from previous off seasons, but at the same time it's his motion is, is needs a lot more work than you typically see a guy his age kind of be able to make improvements. So yeah, I agree with you. I mean, if you look at when the Hawks are good again, if Embry's still on this team, his likely role is to be that kind of defensive um, stopper to come off the bench, but also to be able to help create shots for teammates on the second unit, yep. and then a guy that if you want to like like. Um, Brad Stevens does, has done a lot of times with Marcus Smart, even when he wasn't starting, he'd close the last two to three minutes as a kind of a defensive closer if they were up 8, 10, 12 points. Now, in a, in a game where it's tied or one possession, sometimes he doesn't roll Smart out there. But if he's like, we got, we're got, we up 10 with two and a half minutes left, let's roll Marcus back out there on the court. And that's something that, that Pierce could totally do with Bimbrey. And if that's the role they see for him in the future, why not just let him kind of just really settle into that and kind of own it and, and, and go ahead and embrace that. That makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah. I think Bembry, you know, going to last summer, he had the wrist injury and I think it cut into part of his off season. But I think in a short amount of time that he did have in his last summer, he made a lot of strides with his jump shot and he came into the preseason and it was like, Oh my goodness. Wow. You know, he, he, he's a shooter now. And at the same time, it's, it's sort of a created shot versus, you know, something that's just you've done for a long time. I think over the course of the season it regressed a little bit, not due to negligence, but just the season's so long and there's so much rigor to it, and so many other things to travel. You know, you you don't get to hone it the same way you do in August and September. So I, th- I think he used September last year to really get that shot right, uh, and I suspect he'll do the same thing this summer. And I, I love DeAndre and what he can do defensively, but I. I don't think the shot will be there. And I, I agree with you, though, that he could finish games like Marcus Smart, especially if I think one of the things you'll see more of is just John Collins finishing games as the only big. Uh, and in that context, he could be sort of the person from the bench who jumps in there with the other starters.
1: Yeah, and Bimberg's a really good rebounder for a guard. He's he got great feel for kind of coming back to the basketball and seeing come off the rim before everyone else does in that way that he does. I don't know how many times he had more than 10 rebounds. I don't, I don't love like triple doubles and round numbers, but you know that's a double-digit rebound game for a guard, especially one that didn't start, is, is noteworthy. So that's, that's that's useful as well. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see who they draft and at eight and 10, if that's where they uh, end up drafting. It's, there's so much speculation about whether they can move up or not. You know, um, but. I, probably premature since the trade just happened today to factor in if that's part of what's going on here, but it just, I, I have no idea if the team loves R.J. Barrett enough to really kind of go all in and try to move up and get him, if that's even gettable, because I mean, the Knicks and R.J. Barrett just seem kind of like a, from a marketing standpoint, just so like a, a perfect marriage until what ultimately happens in New York all the time is James Dolan screws it up eventually, but you know, for, at least a, <laughs> for at least a year or two, it's, you know, they can convince their fan base maybe that they have a you know, budding superstar or what have you, but I, I'm kind of against them trading up unless they just really, really believe in R. G. Barrett in a way that I don't yet. Um, but I sure hope they know a lot about RJ Barrett
0: than I do because I'm not paid to do such evaluations. <laughs> the Knicks and trying to win the off season. Go, 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 go for that marketing. Uh, one of the other things that's sort of weird about this trade is that. You know, you look at how it's going to play out. It's, it's not going to happen right away until there's cap space. There's not going to be cap space until after July 1, but you don't do it July 1. You do it after the moratorium. So this number 17 pick, you know, if it ends up being one that is kept, it's going to cut into Summer League a little bit, I think, because Summer League starts early this year, just the way the, the weeks line up. You know, I think July 1st is a Monday. I think Utah for the first time is done like July 3th, instead of doing like the Utah summer league used to be Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. And I think this year it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then Vegas starts on Friday on the fifth. If I'm, if I'm remembering the dates, right. So Vegas summer league, you know, the games start on the fifth. Uh, if this is a trade that can't be consummated until the sixth, and then you got to sign a contract and all of that, you know, there's, they're going to miss substantial, uh, substantial amount of time in terms of uh, things that happened before Vegas and at Vegas.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, but the, the, but the team can plan to account for that. So this is something that I don't know if you'll agree with me, but it's something I have a very, very firm belief in about summer league. Um, if you just watch the first four days of summer, and I, I'm going this year, so I'll be there the 15th, and the 12th. Um, like, I, this is my third, oh. third, third or fourth straight. Uh, oh, I'll be, Dying. I'll be dying on like Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday of that you know, week after the fourth. Um, but I go because I want to see all these players live. Like I said, my educational background is in psychology. I want to see player interactions, coach inter- player coach interactions. You know, behavior on the court when there's adversity, et cetera. I, I put a lot into that, and so I want to go see these guys live, and that, that's kind of my baseline evaluation for it. I think of them going to the league. Um, but that said, in summer league, if you just watch the first four days, you can tell the teams that might want to make a run in the tournament versus not and it's usually like four or five teams only about four or five teams care to play past the games that are 100 available to them because playing that tournament is a grind right. and last year the hawks rightly did not want to do that they had played in utah they had john collins played a few games in vegas they didn't want to put trey through it was, it, it was dumb of the Lakers to do that, Lonzo ball his rookie season. And you they know, it was practiced ridiculous.
0: hard in Utah. Like, Utah, you know, Denver is toted as, like, the mile-high city. Yep. Utah has similar elevation. But then sure. the practices were up in Park City. So you go, oh. like, another three-quarter mile up. And they were yep. doing, like, these two- and three-hour practices in the mornings before the games. And you'd watch yes. them, like, come out to shoot around before the summer league night games. And it just atrocious shooting. I mean, I, I think their legs were gone a little bit. I mean, I think it paid off in the long run. You know, they, they were, <laughs> that was the get in shape, quick prep plan. Uh, right. you, you do that for a week and, and you're going to be in shape, but, uh, yeah, I, they, they were definitely yeah. shot by the time they got to, to Vegas. Yeah. And I think the Hawks, their
1: kind of personality as a franchise is to not care at all but make a deep run. But the, the roster they're carrying in the summer league this year, they're rolling out Herder, no Trey, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to take in just a bunch of young, unexperienced guys. And sometimes those are the teams that are like, hey, let's make a run. For the fact that this number 17 pick, maybe we can get one or two more games if we really try to get in the winner's bracket. You know? right. And so what some people, if they haven't had a chance to get close to summer league and follow it, only about four or five teams kind of say we're going to make a run. And the rest are like, we want to be done after the minimum number of games, <laughs> you know, we're, you know, we don't, we're, because you end up playing like every day, like four straight days in a row. And it's it is ruling. And if you have like really valuable players playing on, on your team that season, like like Trey was last year, you're like, hell no, we don't want to put Trey into that situation, you know. Right. But the roster with Omari plus rookies plus whatever, you know, Alpha, uh, Kaba and whoever else comes over. Um, that's a team like you. you know, they, that team would love to get as much run because they're trying to get as much visibility to scout, you know, American scouts or national scouts as possible. So those, that, that's a team. That's a squad that will work hard to get every game they can. So be, that could benefit the number seventeen pick if, if that guy misses the first, right. say, two games or so. So there's a way. There's a way much. to try to aim, Yeah, there's a way to try to add a, a couple more games on to the plan if you try to win. Um, Than you might otherwise get, so there's a way to account for that.
0: And honestly, like you you mentioned, Herder, it really doesn't matter. I was just pointing it out to Hawks fans, just to think about it, because it it could get, you know, not necessarily awkward, but I think people might just forget how quickly the days are packed. They think that, okay, well, we'll sign after July one, and it'll happen, and suddenly, well, it might not. It might 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 cut into to quite a bit of that, and in the long run, it really doesn't matter that much because as Kevin Herter showed last year uh, <laughs> the big things happen much later on
1: yeah for sure and you know you could think that maybe he played a lot more minutes later I mean late in the season he was hitting 37-38 minutes a game and you know if he if he w- weren't kind of uh, really um, slowly grad gradually brought into the regular season that he might not be able to do that so you know things things have a way of working themselves out on the, in that area
0: uh, is there anything else you want to hit on before we wrap it up
1: i i, I don't think so I think that covers it for me i'm i'll be fascinated on the i think it's the 20th to see where the hawks actually end up picking and who they get i'm also fascinated to to, to find out across the first round how many guys have to put on a hat of a team they'll never play for and pretend they're excited <laughs> about being drafted by that team because they can't announce the trade yet, except for everyone. You know, it's all sourced and everyone knows it. So, so that's always a little bit of a spectacle that's awkward and uh, but kind of
0: funny to me. So that's what I have looking forward to. All right. Well, thank you. Anything you want to plug?
1: Uh, thank you for that. No, I mean, the draft profiles continue to come out of Peace piece for Cubs. I'm really proud to be a part of that group. I think the group has done a a good job across the board. Um, And then if um, you've not stumbled across it um, and there's a good chance you have it um, because we don't have the greatest list, the most impressive listenership in the world, but I'm really proud of what my twin brother and I have produced the full court press NBA podcast. Not too hard to find us. If you just do a search and whatever, wherever you uh, listen to your podcast and uh, give us a try, we're, you know, we're not hot takey and you know we don't build in a lot of entertainment value we're both um greg is still an au coach i stopped coaching about eight ten years ago i will help him at camps and stuff now and then but our podcast is built mostly on our coaching background and so it's x's and o's and scheme and uh evaluations from kind of a coaching perspective so so it's it's a kind of a niche um kind of uh podcast but if you're looking for you know that side of the game. Then you know maybe check us out if you're looking to to laugh for 45 minutes, um, unless you're laughing at us, you're not going to get that. Straight, so, <laughs> well, don't so, make me I'm laugh. Gonna...
0: But name it, name it one more time, because I don't think you've said the name enough for for our okay. listeners to to hit on it. Yeah. So the full court press NBA
1: podcast. The reason we call it that is that we cover like we aim to cover all 30 teams in the league with equal exposure, and so across the season we watch four teams a week. We try to get four teams that are kind of playing each other so we don't have to watch a ton of games, and we tell you what we saw when we watched them. And so we covered the Magic, for example, this past season, as much as we covered the Lakers or the Raptors. Now, in the postseason, we obviously have to put, cover what's going on, but we actually keep a spreadsheet, and we don't go back and hit the Warriors again, for example, until we've hit all of the 29 teams. So we try to give a very equal... Uh, um, exposure to all teams no matter where they are and we say every year every game every month counts no matter if you're on the minute season things you're doing to try to develop count and we track that so that's where we try to be a little bit different we don't think we can add much to the national narratives the national storylines et cetera, et cetera. you know so we try to go the other way and kind of give you like you know what are the you know what are the suns up to right now you know well, it doesn't look great, but what do we see, you know? Yep. Um. So that, that's what we're going for. And so if that sounds interesting to you, give us a try. We'd greatly appreciate it. So thanks for the opportunity to plug that, Kevin. Sure. Thank you. And thanks
0: thanks for joining me for this one, Glenn.
1: My pleasure. It was a lot of fun, as always, The talk keeps with you. Thanks. All right. Have a good one. Take care, Kevin. See you.